Hey, this is What Do, the business podcast for, oh my goodness, the very serious business podcast for very professional people. Uh, I'm your host, Tom McCoy. With me is Mark Mayoka. Hi, Mark. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming down. Uh, got a great show for you today. We got our first fan question for Mr. Mr. Mayoka, Pro- Professor Moak, I've heard him called. Like Professor Oak from the Pocket Monsters. And uh, Mark Mayoka is a mortgage originator. What is that? I don't know what that is. <laughs> well, it's funny you said that. Uh, it's uh, I, I'm a mortgage originator. I originate mortgages, and I basically do loans for people. And one of the um, one of the things that it's also called is a loan officer. So when I was introduced to um, getting in the business, uh, a cousin of mine said, you want to be a loan officer. I thought I had to like carry a gun and guard the bank and I didn't, didn't really know. But basically when someone wants to buy a house, they come to me and I get them the money to purchase it. Cool. So you talk to the bank? Well, I am the bank. Oh my God. So if you want to buy a house, you call me and we see if you're qualified and then we get uh, the money for you to purchase that home. Ah, so you're like... You decide if someone gets to to live in a great question. I don't decide. I put the package together to send to the bank underwriter for them to say yes, this is approved or this is not approved. Oh, so you so you also decide how long the mortgage lasts and stuff. Uh well, that's based on the client and what you qualify for. But yes, I can do ten year mortgages, fifteen year mortgages. Most mortgages are thirty year mortgages, but there's lots of different structures and ways to do things. Yeah. Okay. So the first fan question was this from Dark and Rawl on Facebook. Is there any way I can buy a house without owing the bank for 30 years? Um, there's no way you can buy a house without owing the bank, but you can change your term to a 20-year loan, a 15-year loan. But one of the things I have a lot of my clients do is they'll do a 30-year loan but what they'll do is, let's say, for example, their payment's $2,000 a month. They'll pay $2,500 so that they're adding another $500 to their principal and can therefore pay the loan off a little bit faster. So what did you? What, what kind of education goes into becoming a mortgage originator, loan officer? Do you, no police academy? No, no, no. There should be, I think. Um, but, uh, you know, you can become a loan officer. Um, there's no uh, law degree. There's no um, finance degree. They just recently, since uh, the mortgage meltdown in 2008, we now have to get licensed through the NMLS. So they do a background check, and you do have to pass a test, which if you study really isn't uh, shouldn't be a problem. But uh, anybody who is willing to work hard that's pretty good with numbers and pretty good with people could be can be a mortgage originator, in my opinion. The mortgage meltdown. Was that you? <laughs> it, I was in it, um, but it wasn't me. Um, I, I, the place that I originate most of my loans is a kind of a high-end area where most of the people are qualified and were able to show documentation to qualify for loans. What happened was they, uh, there was a lot of guidelines that were loosened to, I think, spur the economy, and it created a lot of... Um, fraudulent loans and a lot of people coming into the business who are willing to do some unscrupulous things to make make money and uh you know we had uh it was 
it was from the top down. The uh, the movie, The Big Short. Yeah, that's because that's all I know. Was like the guy that gave the stripper five houses. <laughs> yeah, the uh, that movie is is pretty accurate. It's uh, it's not. It makes the good mortgage originators uh, look bad. It doesn't give credit to the people who. It really kind of made the public, I think, think that everyone in the mortgage business was acting like that. It was just a a, a certain segment, but it was enough to. Uh, to really cause some damage. So tell me, let's go, let's start from the uh, very beginning when you were a little baby man. What career path did you decide? When did you decide? Great question. Uh, here's how it all started. I uh, grew up. All I cared about was baseball. Um, pursued that dream as far as it can go. Uh, you know, was was proud of it. Um, but then uh, I was probably when I was all done. I was 23 years old. And I uh, didn't know what to do. I uh, I got a job uh, for the state at the uh, state auditor's office for my for my uncle, who a uh, great man, Joe Danucci. Um, you know, it was like a second father to me. And um, I worked there, but I realized that really wasn't what I wanted to do. And uh, believe it or not, I wanted to be a stockbroker. So I took off for Arizona. <laughs> I know, I know. Who goes to Arizona to be a stockbroker? I don't know. I did. So I got out there and I went to a seminar for uh, Dean Witter. And it wasn't really your, it wasn't a seminar. It was actually supposed to be an interview. I call it a seminar because it wasn't your typical interview. I got into this room and there was uh, 20 guys dressed up in suits sitting in the room. And we were kind of all looking at each other with our, with our resumes in our hand. And in came this, uh, this speaker. And he basically did a seminar for us on why you do not want to be a stockbroker. And uh, I got to tell you, it scared the crap out of me. And I left that meeting saying, wow, you know, I do not want to be a stockbroker. So here I am in Arizona. I liquidated my retirement account. So I had, you know, $8,000 to my name. Um, No car. Had to buy a car with that. Um, And I was panicking a little bit. So I'll never forget, I stayed up two days straight. I sent out, um, it had to be 50 or 60 resumes to all these companies from the newspaper. And I got two back. I got one from Motorola that said, thank you, we've received your resume. Helpful. (laughs) Yeah. And I got another one from a company that said, come on in, we're really excited to meet you. And it was a little bit of a pyramid scheme. and that actually, that, that company sounded great until they asked me for money. And so that was it. So I, I, uh, I went into a little bit of panic. And uh, I had a cousin out there in Tucson, Arizona, uh, whose husband, um, my cousin Russell, who's a great guy, um, I said, I'm in, I'm in big trouble. I don't know what to do. He, uh, they invited us uh, to their house. And he said, you want to be a loan officer? And that's where I, that story I told you about thinking I had to carry a gun. And, the, and he just started to, you know, walk me through things. I mean, he said to me, he said, what, what, do, you, what do you want to do? And I said, I want, it. I want a career, a job that if I'm good at it and I work really hard, the sky is the limit for my income. And he goes, oh, you want to be a loan officer? And that's how it all started. And then uh, I was there, just to con- conclude the story, I was there for... Five months, started to miss home, but I also was going to all these classes on how to be a great loan officer, and I realized that if I moved back home to Massachusetts where I have friends and family, that it would be a lot easier to get started, and uh, so that's what I did. I came back home. All right. A lot of math and shit? 
yeah, you got to be pretty good at math. I wasn't great at math. I didn't get to, you know, pass calculus, but I'm good using a calculator and I'm real quick with kind of, uh, you know, addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. And you said also people skills. So I imagine like it's a time when you're buying a house, uh, very stressful. Do people take it out on you a lot? All the time. You have to have a degree in psychology also to manage people's emotion. And, uh, you know, the uh, the people skills also, you know, comes to where where you need to get the referrals uh, for people who are buying homes, which is, you know, talking to real estate agents and financial advisors. So you really need to, uh, you know, to, to, to be good with people, um, deal with their emotions. And uh, I have to say the people who like to have a good time and that like to go out a lot uh, and to sporting events do pretty well. All right, but has anyone almost like, what's the most pissed guy you've ever worked with? <laughs> um, the most pissed. Um, I would have to say, I'm not going to give the name, but he was right to be pissed. And it was just because we made a mistake up front. And one of the things that happens is in the mortgage business is once you make a mistake, it's hard to fix it. And we ended up fixing it, but the hoops they had to jump through in order to do it um, were crazy. And, you know, people feel like they can just, you know, yell at a manager and they can just sign off on it. It doesn't really work like that because it's all based on Wall Street and the secondary market. The loan has to be a loan that the secondary bond market wants to purchase. So it's, So loans are originated by the company. They're funded, but after someone moves in, there's something going on on the back burner where the mortgage company actually packages it as a mortgage bond, so it's a security, and then sells it to the secondary market. And if you can't sell it, they don't want to do it. And, uh, you know, these people threaten to sue, and you're just at a place where you you have to just take it and say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake, and do everything you can to to fix the problem. And, yeah, it's it's painful, very. Okay, and that's what happened in the big short, right? When the, you people were selling the bonds market, like a bunch of bad mortgages, but lumped together with okay ones? Correct, correct. So so the way it is is you put, you're supposed to put together good mortgages, package them as a big security, and sell them off. And there were some loopholes that, Obviously, if you watch the movie, you can you can see that a lot of these mortgages defaulted. Therefore, the security you know lost all its value, and uh, you know it's it's kind of a a simple process. You need the money to buy a home, but there's a lot of complex things going on in the background. I don't see that happening now, just because you've actually had back then you didn't have to show any documentation to get a loan. None. Most of the time, none. And there was a lot of things that uh, that happened that were, were, you know, you could just get a CPA letter that says, I'm self-employed as a real estate developer for the last two years. And you would state, the loan officer could state the income on the application. So if you needed to say, I make $20,000 a month to qualify, you write in $20,000 $20, a month. There was nothing to verify it other than this accountant letter. And that's, I mean, basically the the person didn't make that kind of money. Huh. 
You know, so it was it, it, it ended up blowing up. Nowadays, we have to provide W-2s and bank statements and pay stubs. So the loans that they've given nowadays are all documented. So I don't see it quite being the same as it was um, years ago. This, uh, they're doing the right thing now with the, with the whole uh, industry. More homework. Yes. How much do like the work day for? Because like, this is something I notice about people who work in the real estate in general stuff is that they do a lot of schmoozing. What's the ratio of the the working hours spent like going to events? And- um, yeah, that's a that's a great question. So if you've set your team up right, um, and and the thing is, is you need to do enough loans to to afford a team. So many times you're you're building a team, and you're doing all the work yourself in order to get enough so you can pay somebody to help you out. So some people who have really built up big teams, all they do is schmooze. So they're out just talking to people, doing presentations, going to networking events, seminars, and that's great. What I found for the successful smaller teams, so my team is me, an assistant, a production partner, and a processor. It's kind of a smaller team. When you get busy, you're doing less of the networking. So you do a lot of networking, and then you get some loyal referral partners they start to refer you business, and then you do your best to service them so they'll keep referring you. So it's like the rule that it's much, much better to keep a client than to risk that client for a few new ones. Right. You do a good job, you can, you can, you know, that client will refer you. And, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a balance. You know, sometimes, sometimes things happen on a mortgage loan just because it, it seems simple but it's actually more complicated. Sometimes there's things that they're not our fault, but because of the way the consumer perceives them, it is our fault. And then it ends up actually not turning into more referrals and more business. So would you try, do you try to avoid working in a professional capacity with like close friends and family because they know that, are they going to expect like f- basically free money out of you? I do now. Um, one of the things I noticed in the beginning is I'll get a call from like kind of a, a headstrong uncle that I know is I know you're gonna take care of me, Mark. Or, you know I'm gonna trust you. I'll do the best I can, and then they'll look in the newspaper and they'll see a better interest rate. Doesn't mean they could have got it. Doesn't mean, but you know they might think it's all. So ideally, I like to work with um, people who are good people, but are referred to me understand the process, um, and aren't too close. And I actually like when they have a little bit of knowledge so they can do a little bit of due diligence and understand what, what I'm saying. Like not shop around and make it a bidding war just on price, but understand, okay, the market is in this range, Mark's in that range, and I like him. He's good. He, I'm going to stay with him. People who don't know what the range is, you, you can't win. You could you could do a loan that you make no commission on, and they could think you gave them the highest rate in the world. There's really no way to track it, you know. And there's so many you know there's so many lenders out there doing advertisements with these really low interest rates that aren't the same loan. You know, they might be, oh, we have a you know your rate was five percent and mine I I saw four percent out there. Well, mine's a thirty year fixed loan where the other loan might have been a 
7-1 ARM, I mean, it's a, a, an adjustable rate mortgage. So it's not fixed the whole entire time. That's, that's not an apples-to-apples apples comparison. So is that where your money comes from, from like cut of the mm, payment? No. What, what the, where the money comes from is, is basically you originate the loan and it gets sold as a, as a security on the secondary market. And the security, the secondary market is basically a clearinghouse. So think of it like this. You do a $300,000 loan, right? You lend the money to the client. Then you sell that $300,000 loan to the secondary market. They pay you a commission on that and, and refund your three hundred grand so you can lend it out again. Uh, oh, okay. So it's, 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 it's like a clearinghouse, and they set the pricing. So you look at a rate sheet every day, and they say, okay, if I want to make my regular commission with this clearing, you know, w- with the secondary market, my rate is 4.5. Boom, they pay you the commission, whatever your commission is. Ba- it's based on basis points. Right, and then that's 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 what you get to keep, and then that that amount that they pay as a commission gets split with the loan officer and the company, and that's that's how the business works. Oh, and your team. Yeah. Okay. So what uh, who what determines the interest rates? It's like because I I hear on the news like oh my god interest rates are twelve million percent. It's like the world's ending. I don't know what that is. Twelve. I'm. I've. I've heard four, five, twelve. I guess is a very high interest rate for mortgages. There's. There's. There's many different interest rates, and that's the thing. There's. There's obviously the thirty-year mortgage bond. There's. Uh, there's the ten-year treasury rate that they talk about. There's um, the prime rate. Um, the federal funds rate, and the one they're typically talking about, oh, the Fed. You know, they talk about the Fed. The Fed's going to raise the rate. That's the that's the federal funds rate, which affects the prime rate, which is what home equity lines are on. Thirty-year fixed mortgage rates are based on mortgage-backed securities, and it basically goes. The way to think of it is, it goes up. This is a simple way because it's actually a complicated process that you have to simplify. Basically, it's based on the secondary market. And bonds move just like stocks. Good news about the economy is bad news for mortgage rates. Bad news about the economy is good news for mortgage rates. So let's say it's 10 o'clock. The market opens up at 5%. And then they do a jobs report. ADP comes out with a, with a, with a jobs report. And let's say it's, you know, they expected 200,000 200, jobs and 400,000 were, were added. Great news, right? Well, that 4% is probably going to go up a little bit. Because they expect people to be able to pay more for houses, so they want people to pay more? Well, it's because the economy's good. They got to slow it down. Like they, they want to keep the economy steady. They don't want it to go up and down. A, a friend of mine actually gives a great analogy. He says the way the market, the real estate market and the stock market, you know, the way it's supposed to work is kind of like a, uh, an elevator sitting on an escalator. You know, over time it goes up, but it goes up and down all the way up. So they want to keep it, you know, steady so that it's, you know, just right in a nice range. But when unexpected stuff happens, they need to control it. They don't want it to to go all over the board. Like that's what happened. Like, for example, 9-11 happened. And that was such bad news. I mean, the rate, if you remember, you know, interest rates plummeted. I mean, they had to 
they had to lower rates to keep the economy moving. And then when the economy's moving too much, they have to slow it down a little bit. So they're just they're just trying to keep it, you know, it's kind of like driving on the highway. They want you to stay 55, you go 100, you're going to get pulled over. So when libertarians say end the Fed, they're talking about like getting rid of that hand and controlling the you know, I don't know. I I haven't heard that. I'm not very political. But if they if they were saying that, what they mean is the Fed may have too much control. They're probably thinking that there's a little bit of uh, you know collusion in there. Where where and it could be. I mean, I don't know. Um, you know, it's it's all based on news. So so for example, you know, the Fed what they say can affect anything. So let's say the Fed comes out and says, you know, we feel really good about the economy. We think we're growing. Well, then businesses are going to start investing. That's very positive for the economy. Well, because the Fed said that, mortgage rates are going to go up. If the Fed came out and said, we are so nervous, we, we, we definitely, definitely need to tighten. Um, we're nervous. There's a lot of inflation in the market. That's bad news. Mortgage rates, you know, if they say a lot of inflation and they need to tighten, that might be perceived as good because, okay, the Fed's going to bring stuff back, you know. And what happens is when things are good, companies invest. When things are not good about the economy, companies pull back and don't invest. So what they're trying to do is regulate that. If companies aren't investing, they drop interest rates so it, so it makes sense to invest. And, and you know, when, they, when I mean invest, it means hire employees, invest in in uh, R&D and all that kind of good stuff. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it's just, it's, uh, it's up and down. It's just like the stock market. It's exactly like the stock market, how it works. So should my generation hope for uh, maybe a little bit of a dip so that we can get m- more into the real estate? Um, it all depends because when interest rates go down and it's negative for the economy, so do real estate, um, you know, real estate prices go up. And when interest rates go up, real estate prices tend to go down. So it's kind of an inverse thing. Like, um, you know, it's it's all about the bulls and the bears. You know, the bears think it's going down. The bulls think it's going up. The one that's right benefits the most. And that's how the stock, that's how the markets work. You need a buyer and a seller in order to have a market. So that's why they use, instead of the term like good or bad, buyer's market and seller's market for real estate. Right. And how long are those intervals, would you say? It totally depends. I mean, we've we've had a really huge run. I mean, it's been probably a ten year run since two thousand eight. Prices uh, prices plummeted when when you know the whole foreclosure market came in. They, um, you know, they they did everything they possibly could to fix it. We had some huge bankruptcies like Lehman Brothers, and uh, now they're back, and it's been kind of a bull run since then. And um, you know, at the present time, I feel like it's uh, it's slowing down. But uh, but you just never know. You just never know. It depends on so many different things. I mean, who's president? What's going on in the economy? Jobs? I, I mean, it really, there's a ton of different stuff that goes into it. So this is Top Artist Presents What Do. Do you see a place uh, in the loan officer, mortgage originator profession for people somewhere on the spectrum? You mentioned a lot of people skills. But, I, you know, that's something that I feel can be trained for most people. Uh, and definitely the numbers stuff, which I have always sucked at, I realized that probably 10th grade. But uh, can you imagine someone on the spectrum being a loan officer and killing it? 
So that answer is, uh, let me give you a little background. Is um, you know, my uh, one of my one of my kids has autism. Um, she's only nine, so I can't really, you know, predict. You know, I look at the way she is and her. And her um, she's wonderful, wonderful to be around. But she's uh, her communication skills. Um, she's having a little bit of trouble, so I don't know where that's going to be. But if somebody is really organized and can be methodical, I think they can do that. I think obviously, you know, maybe the um, the outgoing cell on the front end might might be a little more difficult to to make the clients come in as much. But I believe that the long play. So for the long term, someone who's on the spectrum that's extremely methodical and will do things the same way every single time will actually be better. Mm-hmm. So, so what happens in the mortgage industry is you get this really fun, outgoing, social butterfly who just goes out there, meets a ton of people, makes them really like them, and they start sending them business. Well, guess what happens? Yeah, yeah, we can do it, we can do it, we can do it. And then the loan blows up, and then they're calling all the time, and they're BSing. Oh, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. With autism, you got that trademark brutal honesty. Brutal honesty, but also I think you would have a little bit more of a methodology that you wouldn't make those mistakes. Mm-hmm. So so a good loan officer, and, and believe me, I've been a terrible loan officer, and I've been a very good loan officer. Um, at the beginning, and it's funny, I got, I got more referrals at the beginning because I had this authentic enthusiasm, like, give me the loan. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to work hard for you. And I would get more business, but then I'd be like, I mean, sometimes I didn't even know it. I would be like scrambling behind the scenes with my boss to fix mistakes I made. And a lot of it was because I was taking in information, not getting the whole story, being too optimistic up front, telling the client what they wanted to hear, where, like you said, the brutal honesty, I think, so, so then when I became, let me, let, me, let me say it this way, then when I became a good mortgage originator, I slowed the process down. I said, listen, before I tell you anything about this mortgage, we got to get all your information. Send me all your information first. I want to analyze it. I want to ask some questions. I want to look up the guidelines. Then we're going to set up another time to go over it. Therefore, I, you know, I would dot my I's and cross my T's, make sure, talk to my underwriter, make sure I could do the deal. Then when the deal would go into process, I would put together a spreadsheet that showed the options, you know, side by side of what we just talked about so they understood, you know, writing that email, introducing them to them to the next person. That is a much better mortgage originator, but that's also somebody on the front end where somebody say, hey, can you do a three-family 5% down? You know, the the guy who, who didn't know what he was doing said, yeah, probably. We could do everything. Send it to me. And everybody's like, Phew. the other one would be like, I don't know. That sounds like a tough one. Let, let's take a look at it. That referral source might be as more motivated. They want to hear, yeah, we can do it. So they're more motivated to actually go to the person who's not as strong. So to to get back to your question, do I think someone on the spectrum, if they could develop a process, be really methodical about it, I think absolutely they 
they might even be able to be better at it, especially with the technology piece. Yeah, because I'm thinking the the schmoozing aspect is probably the best approach for the real estate world because that's what I see. I feel like there are new alternatives. If you can show off your process and make sure that you stick to it because that's when I get stressed is when when I know what's going to happen throughout the day, what I know what's going to happen throughout a process. When I get told, it's like, mm, change of plans, and I'm like, there's that brief heart attack. I'm like, ooh, what now? Then I get through it fine. I've noticed in people further down the spectrum, like uh, in school or things like that, they need pinpoint documentation of like what, what has to be done. And I'm not putting this articulately at all, but like the number crunching people, I feel like that's their biggest strength. Yes. And so what I hear you saying is the schmoozing, let's not even call it schmoozing, that's that's the lead generation piece. Um, there's a loan officer who last year was the top producer in my company. He gets all his referrals from Yelp, which is kind of like a, a Craigslist type. That's where he gets them. And he's extremely methodical. And, you know, he's a little loud. He's a little, you know, it, and maybe isn't so great on the front end generating, doing the schmoozing. But he found a way to get deals coming in and getting things to work on and now he's able to because of his structure and because of his methodology he's able to get them done and i mean it's just the people who are more analytical that know the markets know the guidelines are always better loan officers the people who are more schmoozers are better lead generators and that's actually the the sad part of the business because sometimes the schmoozers make a lot more money and close a lot more loans than the ones who don't, but they they end up um, you know blowing up the deal. I what I like to see, where I see the biggest benefit, would be for the schmoozer to team up with the organized methodical person. Then you got a then you got a killer team. Mm. They bring the leads in, the other person gets them done well. Getting them done well generates a lot more leads. That's probably the fun part for each of them, right? Yeah. And then that's the other thing. You you do best of what, what you like to do. And it's like you ain't working at all. Right. Which is, you know, that's a question that I feel like I should build into the show. What, like I hear the term hard work. And maybe it's because I'm uh, I'm in autism. But I don't know. What does that what does that really mean? Like I've been called a hard worker in areas that I feel like I'm not working hard. For me the term hard is weird. You cannot it's like Yoda, you know? Do or do not. Right. If you can do it, it's not hard, right? I think hard is just time consuming. It's the difference between the difference between easy and hard is can I do it right away or will it take take some time, some practice? Is it putting in a lot of time is it getting uncomfortable that makes it hard work what do you think that's a that's a fantastic question because there's there's some things that i do that i can put in 12 straight hours on and and i get stronger as i go on because i'm really enjoying what i'm doing and i'm getting some momentum um and then there's times where you know, muscling through something for an hour is painful for me. Um, so, you know, you could say it's the someone seeing that, they'd be like, oh, my God, what a hard worker, 12 hours on it. Or I would say, you know what, 
mentally and and the way I feel is that that um that hour was so much harder for me. You know, it just reminds me uh you know my uh my uncle who I mentioned was also a professional boxer and um someone once said, you know, that they they said he didn't train enough. And what he was saying, they said like you know, we were talking about working your abdominals. And he told me, he said, Mark, he said, I'm not going to waste my time on abs and, and muscle through something because I need to spend a lot more time sparring. So, you know, his thing with me was he would do abs for only five minutes but with a 45-pound plate behind his neck. You know, and what he was saying is, you, you know, you need to, you need to focus on what you're good at and do it long. So he his workout in total may have been short, but the things that were most important, he did a lot of. So it's like uh, what I'm for the second time through. I'm listening to the audio book of forty hour four hour work week, and Great he book. says this: it's a uh, work on making your strengths stronger instead of trying to fix your weaknesses. Because you can get a guy for that. I agree, I agree with that 100%. My favorite part of that book is when he says, you know, to figure that out, he says, uh, pretend that you had a heart attack and you could only work two hours a day. What would you do? And then he said, then pretend you had your second heart attack and now you can really only work two hours a day. What would you do? And that's that's a thing to think of because, you know, I, I think of that every single day, especially in the mortgage business. What could I do two hours a day that would be the most bang for my buck? And that would be probably doing the mortgage consultation. So then it's like you start to plan around that where it's like, okay, I got to find that schmoozer, as you say, Thomas, to get out there, go to all the networking events and you know, say, Mark Mayoka is the greatest loan officer ever. You just got to talk to him, blah, 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 blah. You know, then I got to get a really great um, mortgage processor and assistant to make sure once the loans go in the system that they know how to handle everything and make it go through smoothly and that they can look at the file up front to make sure it's done correctly. And all I do is my little spiel about, you know, Mr. Client, what's most important to you? What are you looking for? How much money do you need? What do you think the payment's going to be? Tell me how this fits into your overall financial plan. So if I only could work two hours a day, that's what I do. But the problem with that is all the other stuff, it's just not easy to find those people and set it up so it works methodically. So have you ever attempted that? It's like how how short how short a day can I make for myself? Well, it's kind of a painful thing for me because uh, there was a time where I had a team of six, and I was really going towards that that goal, and I just I set up the team wrong. Um, so to be honest with you, right now I'm actually uh, trying to build up that volume to get to that point again, so I can do it right this time. Mark, thank you. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. I had a great time. Thank you. I'm going to have you back down, too, because you're also a, an entrepreneur. Yes, we uh, we have a, a whole other business that the that my mortgage business has kind of uh, escalated into. That uh, That's my, my, my big passion. I'd love to come back and talk about it. Stay tuned, folks. This has been What Do? 
patreon.com slash topautist. See you 